All right, everybody. So today, back on the podcast, we have Milo Wolf. How we doing, man? I am good. I'm glad to be back. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but it's always an honor to come on there. Yeah, and you were just telling me, so I think probably a lot of people did see the first episode, but if they didn't, maybe some of your background and what you've been doing recently, because you were just telling me you just met up with like half of the fitness industry. Indeed, pretty much. Yeah, so my background is I'm currently finishing up my PhD in sports science. My topic is the effects of range of motion during lifting on hypertrophy. So basically, what range of motion is best for growing more muscle, I guess. Um, I submitted my thesis a few months ago, and so after I submitted I was kind of planning on submitting right before leaving for a big trip. And so about a month ago, I was on a trip for two weeks across the U.S. And I met with a lot of people over there. Um, people like Brad Schoenfeld, um, Mike Isretal, Greg Knuckles. And it was awesome. Had a really good time. And now I'm back back in the hood, grinding. You feel me? So, Have you met with Steve Hall? I have. He's in London, so I've uh, met him a few times. Okay. Gone to train a couple times, not as much as I would like, considering that he lives like two hours away from me. Right, right. Um, but he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, like you know, depending on the proximity, like when you are depending on the space. Like I have friends who could be an hour away, and I, I'll see them like once every few months. But if somebody from like the fitness industry is like, "Oh, you're two or three hours," we got to make it happen, right? Um, and, and I've met a few people, not as many as you have just in the last two weeks, <laughs> but, but throughout the years, I've met a few cool people too. It's a weird one, right? Cause when someone's living close by, there's no sense of urgency yeah. or like exclusivity or scarcity. It almost comes back to the sales thing where people always try and create a sense of like, Oh, it's urgent, a limited time offer and like scarcity. Oh, only three spots left and shit like that. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with seeing people who live close to you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. It doesn't appeal as much. So, uh, so a few things we're, we're going to talk about, um, you had made a post regarding basically like health, cardio longevity. So we want to get into that. Um, but I actually want to start with, I just saw this post very recently, um, this morning by Chris Barricat. So I, I want to pull that one up because he's been on the podcast at least once, if not twice. Um, and I actually, I thought of you and the research you're doing pretty much right away when I saw it. So let's see, I don't know if you saw this, he had posted, the last 20 plus years of exercise science research has made no practical difference to the muscular development of natural bodybuilders competing on stage. Nutritional science has not moved the needle much either. Natural bodybuilders do get leaner and more conditioned today, primarily due to longer contest prep and dieting phases, not because of novel dietary or exercise interventions. And then like one top thing that uh, Nunez posted, I think it goes to show that genetics are that important in bodybuilding. The bodybuilders that have benefited the most are the ones with average to below average genetics. Populations that can't get away with simply being consistent and working hard, the top tier guys, not so much. And then, you know, they kind of had a back and forth, but basically the idea that all this research we're doing really has not moved the needle and it's really genetics, consistency, hard work over time. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that's the best take ever, especially the way it's contextualized. So specifically he refers to, it has made no practical difference to the muscular development of natural bodybuilders. It's not really referring to the peak of the sport, nor is it referring to enhanced bodybuilders. I do think that most natural bodybuilders nowadays are a lot more evidence-based than they used to be. And I think that if you're talking about the broader population of natural bodybuilders, generally, they have probably improved, right? Like, it could be a fact of larger talent pool, so the average competitor is just more jacked, or what have you. But I think that, honestly... If he were to make that same argument with regards to enhanced bodybuilders at the top level, where they don't really take notice of advances in science that often anyways, yeah, fair enough. Like, it's probably just a larger talent pool, maybe even advances in 
PD use as opposed to exercise science. Um, that's a more convincing case to me. But I think with regards to natural bodybuilders, I do think that even though a lot of the things that we're talking about don't be a huge difference, right? Like when we're talking about doing additional volume, like say doing 18 sets per week instead of 12, you know, or doing length and partial work or doing length and emphasis work, all that stuff can make a slight difference. And there will be some subsection of the natural bodybuilders that apply this stuff and probably see a benefit from it, you know, compared to the impact of genetics, genetics alone on how well you do in bodybuilding, it's relatively small. But I think that's a, it's somewhere between incorrect and um, reductionist. Like, it's just straight up incorrect in the sense that I think a lot of bodybuilders nowadays do apply exercise science findings from the last 20 plus years, whether that's the interference effect, like, you know, minimizing cardio to, so as to potentially lose a bit less muscle during your prep, whether that's volume potentially, where I think nowadays more natural bodybuilders are going a bit higher in volume, say, if previously there were a lot of natural bodybuilders doing like three sets a week, just because they're like, oh, HIT is the thing. Mm-hmm. Now they might be more so doing like 10 sets a week. Like these are all things that have shifted over the last 20 years and that have all been documented in the last 20 years with an exercise science that all make small but appreciable differences to your hypertrophy. So that's where I see, I think it's straight up incorrect. And where it's reductionist is saying that it's made no practical difference. I, I don't think that's true. I think it does make a difference. But whether or not like it's a meaningful difference depends on your definition of meaningful. If you think that natural bodybuilders look like shit anyways, yeah, yeah, fair enough, and you might have a point. Um, <laughs> equally, I think that it is an appreciable difference, personally. There was, uh, I'm trying to find this guy's name. Oh, um, Jeff Willett. Do you know who that is? It might be a little before your time. I do not, actually. So Jeff Willett was one of those guys, I'll probably maybe include a picture of him, but um, he was back, I don't know, this was maybe early 2000s. And like, you know, at the time, a top natural bodybuilder, uh, you know, you could just Google him and find him. Uh, super impressive arms, everything, I mean, it definitely falls into the category of was this guy truly natural? He mm-hmm. was, and, and also during that time period where a lot of these pro steroids and, and questionable agents would come out, right? Like pro hormones, I should say, and uh, the designer steroids is what I meant to say. Um, yeah. yeah, where where things were uh, legal technically, right? But uh, eventually they got banned and everything, like super droll and whatnot. So um, in any case, during that period, you had a lot of these guys who were really had incredible physiques and then perhaps coincidentally they stopped competing once these things became banned um but but the reason i bring that up is because i think if you were to look at the average like maybe like the the median lifter at at this point they probably are further along because of the evidence because you have less people just doing ridiculous routines and pump and fluff and staying the same weight that's a huge one i talk about all the time is i really do think you need to gain appreciable weight over time right um, I think the whole like Greg Doucette main gaining has been probably one of the worst things for like the, the newer lifter. Uh, so I think that stuff has, has really made significant differences at the top level. Do I think the top natural bodybuilders today are further along than 10, even 20 years ago? I'm not sure. I don't, I, I will say, I don't follow natural bodybuilding, you know, that much where I'm seeing it, but I mean, Doug Miller is what a decade ago, um, are people bigger than Doug Miller was? Sure, that's a good point. I will say the main gaining point is a great one, especially in beginners. I think the influence on beginners who are 120 pounds and don't want to bulk because they could just stay 120 pounds and gain muscle and recomp all the time. Yeah, it's like you can't get that big if you're six foot and 120 pounds all the time. Sorry, mm-hmm. like you're not gonna get to zero percent body fat and then get negative <laughs> percent body fat and get more and more jacked. 
um, <clears throat> I do agree with you in that, like the freaks of natural bodybuilding, a lot of them wind up going into enhanced bodybuilding eventually, anyways. So I think there is like a lag where right now the best bodybuilders kind of coming in are going to potentially go into enhanced bodybuilding now online. Um, specifically with regards to the post, that we're not really talking about the post anymore now. It was referring to natural bodybuilders overall, not necessarily to like elite natural bodybuilding, like not to WMEF worlds necessarily. Um, but yeah, like ultimately we are talking about the influence of one thing, which is like genetics, which is huge versus the influence of a few things that have a very small impact, like how much volume you're doing, not doing two sets a week, but also not doing 60 sets a week, not training a muscle once a week with 40 sets. Per the impact of those things is going to be meaningful, but compared to the impact of genetics alone, it's not going to make a huge difference. So you're going to see similar physiques. 10 years ago versus now doesn't mean it's not making a difference just means that other things are making more of a difference yeah yeah which i, I think is good to have that context because this is one of the things you know every once in a while i get a little pushback that i i'm negative in this regard or that i um almost like a fatalistic sense which i, I definitely it, is not the case i mean I, I think obviously people could make you know huge strides in their physique but i do think it's good to have people like you like my like guitar like alberto nunez who, who do say like look we're doing all this we're you know positive in the space we're saying you can make progress and make these changes but at the end of the day genetics are a huge factor and maybe even the main factor as far as the difference in physique among people who have let's say been consistent for 10 years right like of course the sleep of course the nutrition but if you're doing all those things then the reason this person is 20 pounds bigger than that person is not because of length and partials you know or something like that yeah and it's the only thing where on the one hand that is very true on the other hand some people who have uh, nefarious intentions or profit-driven individuals might tell you that no it's not because of genetics it's because you're not doing this one trick that i'm doing sure. um i will say most people who've been lifting for a long time and i've observed this with most scientists most lifters eventually kind of become a bit more defeatist they're like yeah. oh, okay like, <laughs> yeah. as long as my training is in reasonable spots and like my sleep is in a reasonable spot and everything like that i'm not sure i can roll the dice and may the dice fall where they may um so it's interesting to see that pretty much everyone has been lifting for more than like six to ten years maybe yeah kind of ends up in a similar place where it's like i'm just gonna keep training <laughs> if i'm gonna grow some more great but i can't do much more than i'm already doing it's not gonna change much yeah yeah no it's, it's definitely the the times i'll see a post like no michael hunter's naturally you just got to train for 20 years or like i'm gonna you know, do this xyz thing it's almost always somebody with no training experience up to maybe three years it's very rare that it's somebody who's been training for like a decade that's like no there's no limits you know it's interesting as well, because I think the people who usually ascribe the most meaning to like, oh, you can make a huge difference with this one tip, are the people who've been training for like two years, but have mm -hmm. excellent genetics. Yeah. And they will like use that to sell whatever small tip trick they're selling. So, yeah. And I even think, I mean, so there's, you know, I, I would say the, the most evidence-based like, who are actually doing research again, like you and, um, you know, Lane and, and Mike and all these people. And then there's the people who I would say, if you know, like Jeffrey Verdi Schofield and um, Alex Leonidas, where they're not doing research, but they're, you know, they're, they're still in that camp. And those guys, I think, are less so going to say, like they, a lot of these guys say that there's no hard natural limit. And then you got the people who say, like, there's no genetic influence at all. And that's more the people you're talking about, right? The kind of grifters and charlatans of the world. But I think between those first two categories, whether or not we want to say there's a clear natural limit and get into this whole debate, we're, we're all basically saying the same thing, which is that you start lifting, you make great gains somewhere in that, you know, seven to 10 year mark, things are going to dramatically slow down. And, and if you've really been doing things appropriately, then at 12 plus whatever the number is years, 
you know, whether we're talking zero or, you know, quarter pound of muscle, we're basically saying the same thing. Yeah, for sure. So I think that I mostly agree with people like Arthur Destiny, Alex Leonidas, and uh, um, fuck Jeffrey, right? Jeffrey, yep. yep. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I mostly agree with those people, specifically because of the distinction between what's epistemically true and what's like a useful belief. Mm-hmm. What's epistemically true is that there probably is something like a natural limit at some point, like just theoretically. And there is a huge influence of genetics on hypertrophy. That's epistemically likely just true. On the other hand, you can acknowledge that as being true, but you can also have the belief that you're nowhere near the natural limit, even if it does exist. And that's a super helpful belief to have. Like just in terms of like being more detail orientated, making sure that you have your ducks in a row, that sort of stuff. So when someone says that, oh, it's all just hard work and like genetics don't play a role, you know, it's all just hard work. There is no talent. I wasn't I wasn't talented to begin with. And then you see pictures yeah. of them as a child and they're like <laughs> stacked. Or you see right. people have pictures of them when they're one year into lifting and they're already bigger than you would ever be. You're yeah. like, okay, cool. Um, you just worked really hard for a year, I guess. Um, those people piss me off. But I do yeah. find the belief of, hey, there is no natural limit helpful, you know, so. Yeah, no, I, I've mentioned that before, too, um, in regards to uh, Jeff Alberts, right, where it's like, okay, he's he's almost, or I know he actually, he is 50 now, I believe, if not 51. Um, and it's like, you know, is there a huge difference between him now and let's say 43 or something like that? No, but if that, those hate, those whole eight years, you said, there's no point to this, you know, I'm just going to maintain on two days a week, it's way less motivating. And, and so there's a whole debate and you could have a whole podcast on the utility of truth, you know, and, and is it always good to to follow the you know blunt truth, or is it good to have maybe a, a hope that's not completely true, but allows you to you know whether it's get through life or, or get through your lifting sessions, whatever it is that can kind of help people you know go through that. For sure, and I think the placebo of oh I'm nowhere close to my natural limit, I'm still growing, and the general growth mindset that comes with that is probably going to be a positive towards you growing more muscle, etc. If anything, so. I enjoy people who have both the epistemic reasoning that, hey, there is a natural limit, genetics play a role, but also the belief, the personal sort of belief or strength of mind, whatever, that I'm not nowhere close to it and I'm still going to strive to improve in spite of the influence of genetics and all that. Yeah, yeah, totally. So so let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the cardio post that you had made and then just kind of give some people some general background on that. So uh, the first time I started hearing people talk about this in the fitness space was actually, I mean, you know, obviously people talk about it for a long time, but in this kind of like group, I saw Greg Knuckles and I believe maybe Trexler at the time, they had come out with the, where they they had done a review on the study that had shown, you know, I think it was up to 16,000 steps. Like basically there was no limit to like the number of steps helping with longevity and, and decreasing mortality. Um, and then I've seen kind of this dichotomy between people who I would say, again, like you would fall into with your recent post saying, hey, as long as you're doing like the step count and lifting everything, it doesn't, you don't need to be doing this vigorous activity. And then, you know, Peter Tia has blown up in the last couple of years and um, the kind of that camp of, hey, when you look at the studies on VO2 max, higher VO2 max very clearly correlates with longer life. Uh, you need to, you know, and, and all this zone two work has been talked about in the last few years and doing zone five work. Uh, Brian Borsi and I just had a podcast on this recently. And those are saying two very different things, right? I mean, one is saying as long as you're active and you're getting your steps in and you're lifting, that's great. And the other is saying you need to be actively doing extremely high intensity activity in order to kind of stave off the decline with age. So it's just as like a general background for people listening. 
Sure. So I'll hit it off. Uh, the paper you're referring to, that Greg Malcolm's and Trestle shit around, is one of several papers on the association between step count and alcohol's mortality risk. That paper specifically probably was the most compelling in terms of showing that, hey, to an extent, even past like 12, 15,000 steps per day, you will still see improvements in your overall health by doing more steps. That's helpful, but equally, that is only looking at steps, right? So you're not looking at whether or not they're lifting as well. You're not looking at other stuff as well. You're just looking at steps specifically. So there's definitely some validity there, and especially in the sense that the shape of the curve suggests that, hey, when you go from zero to, say, 8,000 steps, you'll see a pretty big improvement in your health. But going from eight to 15,000, the improvements are already markedly lower. Past 15,000 steps or so, again, not accounting for any other activity on top of that, the improvements start to become quite marginal, if there are any, right? Especially if you're lifting as well. The reason why I find the data that I shared, that actually Greg Michaels shared as well, and we actually spoke about this in person, Greg Michaels and I, um, about this paper. And actually, previously to reading this paper, I was doing cardio myself uh, as part of improving health. Um, and after discussing this paper and reading through the paper a few times, I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe with a high step count and lifting consistently, I'm just not sure there's a meaning for any additional benefit to doing vigorous cardio as well. So the paper I'm talking about now was looking at not just step count, but it was a, a meta-regression of a big data set of about 120,000 people, I think, if I recall correctly, but a big, big data set anyways. Um, looking at both moderate physical activity and vigorous physical activity and the effect that has on all-cause mortality, as well as like cardiovascular disease specifically and like diabetes specifically, that sort of stuff. And in that study, broadly speaking, A, once you reached a certain level of moderate physical activity, moderate physical activity being stuff like steps, like walking around, like gardening even, like very low intensity stuff, lifting was included as well, just because lifting isn't very energetically demanding, like you don't burn a ton of calories doing it. Um, once you reach about like, I want to say five or 10 hours off memory of moderate activity, like walking around during the week, like lifting throughout the week, the returns on additional activity become quite small. Like you don't get much of an additional health improvement from doing more activity. And specifically, it looks like the health improvements you get are pretty similar, whether you exclusively do moderate physical activity or whether you also add in vigorous physical activity. In other words, if you're already doing like 10 hours of walking plus lifting a week, there doesn't seem to be a meaningful health improvement of adding in vigorous physical activity, like for example, running or cycling at relatively high intensities, like say above 70, 75% of heart rate max. Um, so that was a pretty compelling thing. Uh, you can get the same health benefits, broadly speaking, whether you're doing moderate activity, like walking and lifting, or whether you're doing vigorous activity, like for example, running or endurance work or zone two work, as a lot of people are doing now. So you can do a combination as well. You can do some moderate, some vigorous, and you'll probably get the same benefits. And as far as benefits of that activity go and how they kind of impact health, my reasoning previously was that if you're already doing steps and if you're already lifting, cool, you're getting some adaptations that are specific to the moderate intensity that you're training through, right? But in order to get the other health benefits, like that come from higher intensity cardio, like zone two cardio and what have you, you would need to actually go and do that. And that would then independently benefit your health. Now, having seen the results of this study, I was kind of confused a little bit because that rationale was still in my head of, well, we kind of want a variety of adaptations. We want a higher baseline so that as we age, we have more to lose before we get into trouble, essentially, right? Like you have your peak fitness when you reach, like, say, your 30s, 40s, 50s. 
And then as you age past those decades, you kind of start to lose it. And eventually that can get so low that you start like falling over and breaking your hips and shit like that, which mm-hmm. is not good for health. Um, so my thinking was that the higher the baseline of strength, the higher the baseline of, for example, VO2 max, the more time there is before we start running into those complications that arise when your VO2 max, when your strength gets too low. Now, after a conversation with Greg Knuckles, what he kind of explained and what I, I think is probably true is that the adaptations required to keep you alive are just not that difficult to reach. Like, you don't need to squat three times body weight to have a pretty good lifespan. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be able to run a marathon to be able to have a good lifespan. Like, realistically, those adaptations that you need to run a marathon, you're never going to use in real life. Like, you're not going to suddenly go in the street and someone starts running after you and survive and not get shot. You yeah. have to run away for the for four hours for like 24 kilometers or whatever it is. Like, you, that's not how it goes. Um, so, those adaptations that you get from specific zone two choreo, for example, may not be directly contributing to health. And that's kind of what brings me to my next point. And it's something that some people have argued um, is the association between VO2 max and lifespan. When you think about any association between an adaptation like VO2 max or even a health marker, what you have to consider, like a health marker like HDL cholesterol or LDL or what have you, is that you're more so talking about the association between two outcomes as opposed to a behavior and an outcome. Like, when you're talking about the association between VO2 max and health span, the assumption there is that you can very strongly influence your VO2 max. And you certainly can. But just like we mentioned earlier, genetics also influence this sort of thing. Whether you're also lifting influences this sort of thing. Such that, yeah, you can definitely improve your VO2 max even if you're a lifter, even if you have bad genetics for endurance, but it won't be necessarily like elite elite levels. And that's actually the interesting second point. Some of the data I've seen on the association between VO2 max, and I'm not a super huge expert on this, but I have seen some meta-analyses on this. Some of the association between VO2 max, like how high your VO2 max is and how long you tend to live for, the category that's considered elite VO2 max actually has a barely above average VO2 max. So like the, the most trained data points in those meta-analyses, like for example, I can link one uh, in the show notes, they had a VO2 max of, I want to say, about 50 or 45 milligrams per kilogram per minute. That's something that you could probably achieve just by walking and by lifting in hypertrophy up ranges. It's that was a... the elite group you were saying? Yes, correct. So it was separated into five quintiles. So mm-hmm. long 20%, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 to 80, 80 to 100%. So percentiles, essentially. Okay. And the elite was 80 to 100. And in that study, for example, of about, I want to say, 100,000 people, the top 20% was kind of considered elite. And if you actually look at the associated uh, VO2 maxes that were in that quintile, it was like 45 milligrams per kilogram per minute. Hmm. That is a VO2 max that a lot of people could reasonably achieve just by lifting hypertrophy up ranges. And, and when what you actually was the age those, group, though? Uh, I think the age groups were generally between like 20 and 60 or so. Okay, because that's, like, well, that's a huge range. Yeah, sure. It's a big data set. Yeah, so as you obviously... For 60-year-olds, that's more trained. And for 20-year-olds, that's not very trained at all. Yeah. But equally, like, it's not a... We're not talking about 70 milligrams per kilogram per minute here, which is, like, endurance yeah. elite athletes. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think, like, there is an association there. And again, with associations, you have to consider, sure, you could train to have a better VO2 max, and that might improve your health span. But equally, it could just be that the people who are living longer just have better genetics overall for these things. And that tends to also improve health, like lifespan. So it's not as clear as like, okay, well, let's really train to maximize view to max because this outcome is associated with this other outcome. I would rather look at behaviors that are actually within your control, like, for example, walking, 
moderate activity, vigorous activity, et cetera, and base my recommendations for activity for lifespan off of that rather than, all right, let's try to optimize VO2 max here because there's an association between that and that. So that's kind of my take yeah. on this. Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. I think any time, well, in most situations when we're looking at exercise, whether that's lifting or cardio, uh, of course, there's going to be a drop off as far as how much it's benefiting you, right? I mean, that's what many things in life. And so, um, and, and even with exercise specifically, not only is, is there a drop off in the benefit, it is actually a detriment at some point. I mean, this goes back to, I remember uh, seeing studies, this is when I was in college, they're so talking 10 years ago. And the study at the time was a kind of old study, I, I think it was out of Harvard. And it, it was basically, it was like, you know, it, was, it wasn't a very specific study, but it basically said more than seven hours of exercise per week, you started to actually see a decrease or an increase in mortality. Um, and, and so that was, you know, quite a while ago. So, and also if you look at uh, more advanced cardio athletes, they had increased rates of atrial fibrillation, right? Um, cardiac growth, things like that. So it's definitely not to say you just should do more and more. And I actually would like to know what Atiyah's thoughts are. That I don't like some of, if he was talking about these advanced athletes, because he used to be a very, I don't want to say high level endurance athlete, but he more or less was, and he was doing, you know, many, many hours per week um, and how that could potentially be going against the idea of longevity. So in any case, um, I, I think if that's more or less well understood here, we're talking about, you know, is it just moderate versus vigorous activity that you mentioned? And I think regarding the VO2 max, it, it's hard. I've looked at a number of the studies and it's interesting to see the actual numbers in the studies versus what somebody like, let's say, Atia talks about, because you can kind of, I, I think Brian and I both mentioned that there's almost like a, I don't want to say like a humble brag where he'll talk about like, you know, like if you, if you have maybe a lower VO2 max, like 50 and it's like, okay, well, I, I don't know what his was, but it sounds like it was pretty high, you know? Um, and it's trainable for sure. I think the shorter term studies have shown maybe like a 10% increase, maybe 20% increase. Now that's obviously very different than if somebody was active their entire life, but, but still, you know, it is trainable. Brian and I were both in like the mid forties and, you know, so we're kind of wondering, okay, would it even be possible to get to these like very elite levels? Probably not. And to my surprise, I remember looking at one on uh, college soccer players. So, okay, you got people who are young, and that is a strong correlation between VO2 max and age. People who are soccer players who are doing many hours of fairly vigorous activity per week, and they're lighter. And so VO2 max, for people who don't know, um, it's milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. So generally speaking, lighter individuals are going to have higher VO2 max numbers. And so... Um, basically these soccer players, I'm guessing probably 150 to 160 pounds. And even then their average numbers was about 55. So these were not like, like you said, like seventies and whatnot. Um, I would guess that there is a significant correlation in terms of, if you want to talk about health span versus lifespan between, you know, the people who are 70 and still doing, you know, a lot of activities, but there's so many factors as to what went into that, right. Genetics and how long they've been doing these things, um, I, I, my intuition would be that while it might not dramatically extend lifespan, I would think that quality of life would be better for people who are used to doing some vigorous activity. Because I know people who they lift, you know, a couple of days a week, they're taking five minutes between sets, and then they walk, and they're getting, you know, six, 7,000 steps a day, whatever it is. And I think that's fine. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily going to stop as much the decline as we age. Yeah, that's interesting. And see, what I found interesting here as well is that your VO2 max is untrained, if I understand correctly. We're 45. No, I, I, I do cardio like twice a week. Um, Has that been consistent even before the reading of 45? 
it's been consistent since I was about 18. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And was Brian doing cardio previously as well? He was doing CrossFit back in the day. He right? was, yeah, he did CrossFit back in the day. I don't know if he was doing much like official cardio since then. Yeah. So that's the interesting thing to me is that, as I mentioned earlier, I do think lifting, especially in hypertrophy rep ranges, especially for a lower body, will generally still enhance your VO2 max pretty substantially above untrained levels, right? And I think that's the that's the bigger uh, statement you can make is that. Improving your view to max relative to when you're untrained, that will probably enhance your lifespan and your health span. But whether I think that going from, say, a view to max of like 45 or what have you up to like for relatively young people, right, to say 60 will enhance it. I'm not sure we can make that claim very confidently. I could be wrong here. This is not an area where I'm like the expert, right? Yeah. Um, But I'm a bit skeptical. I will say that when you actually look at the heart rates that are achieved throughout hypertrophy training, for example, if you're doing a few sets of heart squats, your average heart rate might be just about like 60-70% of your maximum heart rate, which is kind of the same as like a lot of zone 2 training will be. Like, yeah. it's it's not that distinct metabolically in a sense. So, But it's generally such a short time. I mean, how, you know, you might be in that RA for a couple of minutes. Oh, right? for sure. For sure. For sure. Uh, but like the average heart rate, say, between between sets like including during sets and between sets combined might be around like 120 130 for a lot of lifters when squatting for example i think but yeah so like you will get at the very least some baseline adaptations to your vo2 max i think even just doing hypertrophy training and i'm not sure that the additional adaptations you would gain from doing you know uh, specific vo2 max training for its own sake as far as improving health span and lifespan will directly improve your health span or lifespan. Um, and equally, like the rationale I mentioned earlier, we're having a higher baseline, say going into your 40s and 50s of VO2 max strength, et cetera, so as to have more time before you reach like critically low levels where you start losing independence, for example, like you need some, you need a care or you can be at danger of like falling over and fracturing a rip, uh, hip more. Um, I think that can be mitigated immensely just by being consistently physically active even as you age. So yeah, sure, you could have a higher baseline that would help somewhat. But equally, I think the bigger thing is just to stay active as you age. And that will take care of a lot of it. Um, you can slow the decline in muscle mass, the decline in strength, the decline in VO2 max even, to a pretty good extent just by staying physically active. Like There's kind of two ways of making you age more gracefully. One is increasing the baseline from which you start dropping, and the second one is also like decreasing the slope of that decline. And I think the latter option is potentially more helpful than the first option because as you mentioned like with especially high volume relatively intense endurance training there is also sometimes an elevation in mortality just because of a variety of which it happens to the horse for example so yeah yeah i would guess that you know you mentioned is it really helpful to go from say 45 to 60 and i think probably most people could not even get to 60 but um realistically i think that if you had some theoretical situation where somebody is at 45 VO2 max or 40 VO2 max and they stay again, magically with no decline with age, do I think there would be a difference in their longevity compared to somebody who was at 60? I don't think so. I, I almost would, you know, I would bet that there wouldn't be because even when you look at when people have issues with like, you know, activities of like daily life and whatnot, that tends to be sub 30, even like low twenties as far as the VO2 max. So I agree it like 40, 45 is probably fine. I think, you know, to be fair to Atiyah, because I know he's he's gotten um, a lot of hate in, I guess, recent months about this. 
I think his point is, again, that decline, that if we can go to a high level, it's inevitably going to drop. Actually, um, the my kind of like mentor in college, Dr. Nicholas Radimus, he was saying how he had somebody he knew who was a researcher as well, and he presented and basically, he would do a VO2 max test every year. Now, the guy was in his 70s. And even with training and everything, it just steadily decreased every single year. And so you're kind of factoring that in. You know, you're factoring in, okay, I'd, I'll be fine in my 70s. But if I get to my 80s or even 90s, am I still going to be able to drive? Am I still going to be able to, like, you know, lift groceries or play with my grandkids, things like that? Which, realistically, most of us aren't thinking too much about. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't hate the argument, I guess what I'm saying. I don't think anybody can definitively say, but I, I do understand the point of like, you know, we're really factoring because I, I mean, I have patients who are two years old up to a hundred years old and man at, at 80 plus it's, I mean, it's just so dramatically different. And, um, you know, I have a couple who I got one guy who's 92 and he's still playing tennis regularly. And it's just such a dramatically different life than most 92 year olds, you know? For sure, man. And I think we don't know for sure here what's going on, like whether or not having the higher baseline for VO2 max would really be beneficial to health span. Um, potentially, right? It's not out of the question. Um, but that's why I tend to prefer looking at behaviors and how they associate with, for example, health span and lifespan rather than outcomes like VO2 max. Because we have a bit less control over outcomes. How to achieve those outcomes is a bit less clear. Whereas the behaviors, like very broad sort of categorizations of moderate activity and vigorous activity, gives us a lot of flexibility in giving recommendations. If you don't like lifting for health, ideally, maybe include some lifting, but you don't have to only lifting by any means. You can do some other vigorous activity, some other moderate activity. And in fact, I think that for most trainees past a few years of lifting, lifting probably does count as vigorous activity, to be honest. Like, I think that the energy expenditure, especially for lower body training, for hypertrophy training, um, past a few years of lifting does become more so classified as vigorous physical activity. But um, yeah, I think it gives us flexibility. It gives us more certainty in giving recommendations as opposed to like, if you tell the average person, hey, go and improve your view to max, they probably don't even know what that is, let alone how to achieve that. So if you tell them, okay, well, find some sort of activity you can do consistently for this much of time, this much intensity roughly per week, and you'll be a good spot, that's a lot um a lot easier of a recommendation and it's going to be to the to the frustration of some people who want to optimize right because they want the ultra specific ultra neurotic recommendations but the reality is i think with a lot of areas of evidence whether that's like range of motion now or this we don't have enough clarity to tell you for sure this is what's going to optimize your health span we can just point you in the right direction give you the right ballpark estimate if you start there in all likelihood you're very close to optimizing and at this point you, you mentioned that you were doing cardio consistently what are you doing now? Is it almost no cardio? Is it just step count? Zero cardio. So I did cardio for a few months. I did twice a week zone two cardio. Not that much time, but basically a minimum dose zone two cardio. Um, now, so I've been doing steps, and I mean high step counts of on average between ten and fifteen thousand for like six, seven years now consistently. Um, on top of lifting, bit over time between like four and 12 times a week so like my activity overall wow. is still is pretty high yeah um so that's what i'm doing now no more cardio and i don't know i mean if all your health markers are in a good spot like an, pretty much an optimal spot like whether we're talking blood pressure whether we're talking um markers of overall health by like a blood test and what have you if all of those are in a good spot and you're meeting these guidelines for activity 
Obviously, those are going to change over time as you age, like the markers for cholesterol, the markers for blood pressure, and what have you. But if you're consistently being active and the markers are in a good place, you're probably doing pretty well. Yeah, and I would tend to agree with that. I mean, it's somebody like you where, okay, you're doing 10,000 plus steps per day and you're lifting hard, which again, I'm not going to discount that. I mean, some of my leg workouts, I'm definitely, you know, huffing and puffing. And that's even with significant rest, you know? Uh, so I I think that, and, and you're how old? I'm 23. 23. So, you know, young guy, very fit, doing these things. Do I think you really need to be doing like a ton of zone two on top of that and zone five on top of that? I just don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. And I also think that even if somebody really built that up now in their 20s, they're, you know, if you were inactive for a whole year, for example, all that can just kind of go away. And and maybe the cardio adaptations have a similar muscle memory type effect as, as you know, like we talked about with weightlifting. I'm not sure how strong that muscle memory effect is compared to weightlifting, but you could be doing all this. And not to say that you should ever have a period of life where you're just inactive, but um, I've seen that even with my brother, I was going to mention when we did the VO2 max most recently, uh, his was actually only 39 and he's a couple years older than me, was a cardio athlete throughout high school, college track, cross country, all this stuff. And the last few years, really ever since COVID, he kind of has just been inactive. And so all of those years wasn't enough to then bring him lower than maybe he would have otherwise been anyway. So not, not to say again, just because you're going to have a later period that you should just not do it, but um, I, I do think maybe as we get older, it could be more important. And again, like somebody like myself, I was actually surprised at how low my step count was. I'm thinking like, I'm going to be seeing patients all day. So I'm going room to room. One of the reasons I actually bought an Apple watch was to track this. And I get like four or 5,000 steps a day. Like I'm actually pretty inactive. Um, and I think probably there's a decent number of people who think they're more active than they are, right? Just like, you know, with calories or anything else. So, um, so for me, I do one zone two per week and one zone five per week, just because I'm not nearly as active as somebody like you with the step counts. I train three or four days a week as far as weightlifting. So I'd rather be a little on the safe side and say, Hey, I can still get my heart rate up to, you know, 170 plus I can still get out there and do these things. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be magic, you know, compared to, for somebody in your situation. For sure. And there's a couple of things I want to say with that. The first is I do think people underestimate how high your heart rate can get with walking pretty fast. Like if you're walking places because you have to get there, like walk in motion, essentially, like you're walking to the store, you walk to the gym, et cetera, and you're kind of under time pressure, you can get your heart rate up to like 100, 110 pretty consistently. Like it's not, it's not negligible, Right. Um, unless you're very well trained for a lot of people, it will still be not zone two, but it'll be like some stimulus for view to max improvements. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, so that will still increase your view to max above untrained levels comfortably. Um, the other thing is this is where if someone has a low step count, that's the one recommendation I can make. If you have a low step count and you don't really have enough time to raise your step count to say eight, 10,000, Doing formal cardio, like zone two cardio, even zone five cardio, can be a very time efficient way to get additional health benefits. Like what you saw in that meta analysis that I mentioned is that it took about half the time for the same health improvement doing vigorous activity versus moderate. In other words, if you had half an hour in your week to do something, you would get about twice the health benefit doing vigorous activity, something like zone two cycling versus just walking, doing something more moderate. So if you don't have much time and you don't have a high step count, zone two cardio can be a great way to do things. And 
you'll also get improvement VO2 max. So if that's something that you think will directly improve health span, all the better. But I think it's a very time-efficient way of improving your health. Um, whether or not it's worse if you're also trying to optimize your lifting, maybe. The data on interference with hypertrophy, for example, is a lot less compelling than we thought it used to be, right? Like back in the day, we thought, oh no, if you do any cardio, you're not growing any muscle. Sorry, that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, whereas in reality, if you take proper precautions, the effect seems pretty moderate, or modest rather. Um, but yeah, equally, I think if given the choice in terms of the time you have available between doing steps and doing like more intense cardio, both for interference and potentially for more of a dose response, 15,000 steps or more, you might still see a slight improvement. I would generally opt towards steps rather than formal cardio if you're. Yeah, um, you went out at the very end there, but you were saying you would rather go steps than cardio for people who have a focus on lifting performance. Yeah, we focus on lifting and also have the time to do so and to potentially want to like eke out those marginal benefits that you get when you go past about 12, 15,000 steps potentially, right? Like you might still get some slight returns for your health compared to like doing even more zone to cardio at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought it back to, you know, that, that chart and the earlier stages of it where yes, if, if you are less active, like myself, I think, I don't know where in that category, I have to go back and look at it, but you know, if you're only getting four or 5,000 steps, there probably is a more clear benefit to adding this specific cardio, right? For sure. I agree fully. Yep. Um, cool, man. Well, you are the lengthened partials guy, so I can't let you go without discussing that a little bit more. Um, I think you said maybe it was before we started recording that you were going to be helping out with Brad Schoenfeld's research. So, so what's going on in the world of lengthened partials? Man, so I think since we last spoke in the world of lengthened partials, both not much and quite a bit has happened. So there's been some more data generally in favor of lengthened partials. I'm not sure. Did we discuss the calf study when we last spoke? The one, not the the stretch one that Eric Helms replicated. No, the, there's a Cassiano study. I don't, no, I don't believe so. So it's it was a calf study uh, comparing either shortened partials, so the top half of doing calf raise, versus full re full reps, getting a full stretch and a full contraction, mm. versus lengthened partials, so just the bottom half of the calf raise on the leg press machine. They had people train for I want to say six or eight weeks. So one group did only shortened partials, top half. One group did only lengthened partials, bottom half. One group did full reps. They measured hypertrophy of the gastroc muscle, so one of your calf muscles, um, at the at a medial and lateral site, relatively proximally, so close to the knee. Anyways, all of those details don't matter too much. But there were two sides for hypertrophy measurements. What we saw was that for one side, lengthened partials did better than both shortened partials and full range of motion for hypertrophy, significantly so. And for the other side, uh, both full range of motion and lengthened partials significantly outperformed shortened partials. So overall, in one comparison, lengthened partials did better than both full range of motion and shortened partials. And the other comparison, lengthened partials did about as well as full range of motion, but still significantly better than shortened partials. So overall, taking those two sides together, that's kind of even more compelling data in favor of lengthened partials over a full range of motion. Now, where I think the study is interesting is that this was the calves we're talking about, specifically the gastroc. They were performing straight leg calf raises, which means that since the gastroc is a knee flexor, mm -hmm. the gastroc was very lengthened already, right? Because yep. the knee is extended, so the gastroc is being lengthened. And so even for the shortened partial condition, who was doing the top half of the rep, and for the full range of motion condition, those groups were still training at relatively long muscle lengths in all likelihood. Yeah. However, the length and partials group was training even longer and even maximal muscle lengths because the knee was fully extended and the calf was fully being stretched via full dorsiflexion and you saw more hypertrophy. 
So this is actually kind of starting to be some evidence for not just training at reasonably long muscle lengths, but training at pretty close to maximal muscle lengths, as opposed to, so there might be like a dose-response relationship, wherein yeah. the longer muscle length you train at, the better it is for hypertrophy, not just like, oh, try to train at relatively long muscle lengths, but all the way to the point of train at close to maximal muscle lengths if you want to maximize hypertrophy. So that's pretty interesting. And that's the fourth study comparing length and partials to full range of motion. To recap, three of those studies found a benefit, including this one now, of length and partials over full range of motion. And one study found no difference for hypertrophy. So overall, fairly compelling in favor of length and partials, yeah. even over full range of motion now. And this is across the quad muscles, two studies across the calf muscles now, one study and across the tricep study, the tricep muscle. So some evidence across three muscle groups now. And obviously we have evidence in a variety of other muscle groups when it comes to other comparisons, like for example, shortened partials versus lengthened partials. So not lengthened partials versus four range of motion. There we have evidence on the biceps, on the hamstrings, on a lot of different muscle groups. So it seems like a pretty generalizable principle and we're starting to get a glimpse of there might be a dose-response relationship between the muscle length you're training at and how much hypertrophy you get. Uh, what was the muscle group tested for the one that was equivalent between the groups? That was the quads. Uh, that study was interesting, both because of the analysis approach they used, which was more so about seeing if there were any meaningful differences as opposed to any differences. Mm -hmm. So they didn't employ uh, null hypothesis significance testing. They employed something called equivalence testing, which is basically when we set boundaries, we say, well, we don't really care about differences that are smaller than, say, 0 0.2. Mm -hmm. We care about differences that are larger than that. It's kind of like for medication. If you had a drug that only improved outcomes by less than the drugs you already have, you kind of don't care. Yeah, right. For the most part. Like you want drugs that do better. And so you set those boundaries as being at least as effective as existing drugs. And so because otherwise like you could just use either one and there's not really much point. And so they use that approach of uh, equivalence testing, whether or not full range of motion and length and partials were equivalently effective or not. And for hypertrophy, they were equivalently effective within like relatively, relatively small boundaries, right? Um, and that study was interesting as well, besides the analysis, because they used the leg press. And from the schematic they showed, in the full range of motion condition, they did about like 80 degrees of knee extension, right? And in the length and partial condition, they did extremely small range of motion. I'm talking from the schematic they showed like 10 degrees of knee extension. So like mm. barely any motion. Yeah. It's quite a unique design and a lot of like partial studies have like half reps. Right, right. 10 degrees, which could for some people mean that, hey, maybe you shouldn't do super small reps. Right. That might be not enough range of motion to really optimize hypertrophy. But I think with one study with a quite a unique analysis plan and design overall, I'm not sure we can say for sure yet that, hey, you should do at least half reps or what have you. So am I correct that you said there was one calf, two quads, one tricep study? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I want to, and those, all of those muscle groups are ones that, like, I think back to the days where, like, DC training was coming out, and there's all this emphasis on the stretch, and, um, and you know, like, the bird studies and whatnot, and certain muscle groups just seem, I don't know if it's easier uh, to stretch, but you, you kind of, like, feel it more, you know, like a tricep, you know, you hold it back there, you get, like, a really good stretch, also just a, a good use of a bicep flex there, um, <laughs> you know, quads are a good one, hamstrings, um, biceps and shoulders, I think are notoriously difficult for getting a really good stretch. Um, I don't know if you're doing anything with your bicep training, maybe like an incline curl or something. It just seems harder to get that like really deep, intense stretch, you know? 
So I will agree with you on the shoulders bit, at least kinesthetically. I don't really ever feel a deep stretch in my shoulders, mm -hmm. like unless I'm doing like an overhead press partial, and that's a bit of a weird one. Mm -hmm. Where I just like I really touch my clavicle on each on each rep and then just go like and you know like really sort of arch my chest and try and yeah. get my shoulders as far back as possible. Um, for the bicep specifically though, I have been doing two two or three exercises I think are pretty good in general. Um, on all these exercises, I'm doing length and partials. I think the exercise where it's the most beneficial to do length and partials potentially would be the incline curl. So the incline curl is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, and we actually have a study comparing incline curls to preacher curls. I'm not sure if you've spoken about that before. But the incline curl is interesting because in terms of position, by having your shoulder behind you and being hyperextended, the long head of the biceps, which works as a shoulder flexor, is more lengthened mm -hmm. than it would be during, say, a standing curl where your shoulder is neutral. However, at the bottom of each rep in the curl, you have essentially no force production requirements. You can lift the weight very easily. But then as you reach the top of the rep, relatively shorter muscle lengths, it gets harder and harder until your forearm is parallel to the ground. So the resistance curve is actually such that the lengthened position is by far the easiest and the shorter yeah. position within the exercise is actually the hardest. Yeah. And so by doing lengthened partials in that exercise, like I say, doing half reps, and what I do is I just touch the dumbbell to my side, like the side of my torso and, and the rep there. By doing that, you're able to typically use a lot more weight and you're able to make relatively lengthened positions at least more challenging than it would be during a full range of motion rep. Where, yeah, yeah sure, you're getting like a stretch, but it's a relatively unloaded stretch because like there's nothing pushing you into a further stretch like it would be during, say, when you're actually like, doing a static stretch. And the hardest part of the lift would be a relatively short muscle lengths. So it wouldn't be that effective for hypertrophy, I suspect. And we do actually have a study comparing incline curls to preach curls. And even though significant, like there were no significant differences, Differences were generally in favor of hypertrophy, in favor of the preach curl group over the incline curl group. Um, and this is why in the preach curl, you do have shorter muscle lengths for the long head specifically, not for a short head because the short head only flexes the elbow. But you have the most tension and lift at relatively longer muscle lengths. Right. Like your forearm is parallel to the ground, relatively close to the bottom of each rep when your mm -hmm. biceps are relatively lengthened. And so it seems like in this study, at least, the effect of where the lift is hardest, aka hopefully close to lengthened position, is more influential for hypertrophy than whether or not you're just training through longer muscle lengths. If yeah, that part that's is super crazy. interesting. So the three exercises I'm doing are incline curls, lengthened partials, preacher curl, lengthened partials, kind of for the reason of the study right here. And finally, I've seen, I want to say it's Alberto Nunez do this variation, which is kind of like an incline curl cable variation where instead of doing an incline curl with dumbbells, you set up the bench um, just kind of in front of a dual cable setup. Yeah. You set up the cables at roughly hand height when you're sitting down, so there's the most tension at the start of each rep. Mm -hmm. You sit down on the bench, the bench is upright like for an overhead press, and you start curling, and yeah, it's the most tension at the lengthened position. You're able to hyperextend the shoulder to get more of a stretch on the long head, and that's actually the exercise they used in a recent study that hasn't been published yet. Um, by Zach Robinson and the guys over at Data Driven Strength, where they compared more shortened training to more lengthened training. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're able to hyperextend the shoulder, get a better stretch on the biceps, get the most tension at the bottom by having the cable set up at hand height. And it's probably just a very good exercise in terms of both stability, in terms of like the tension at the length position, being able to get into that position to begin with. It's probably a very good exercise for bicep growth. Yeah, I've actually recently added incline curls for the first time in a while. And it's definitely a unique strength curve. 
you know, I, I get like halfway. I'm like that, like you said, like that was not that difficult. And then I'm just kind of struggling that middle because um, I'm doing it because I want to get that stretch. But to your point, it, it, it's an interesting curve there. For sure. And so that's, those are the exercises where as long as there is some force production requirement at the bottom. So ideally, like dumbbell lateral raises is length and partials do work better than just doing like a full range of motion where you're going all the way overhead. Mm-hmm. But because there's just such a minimal force production requirement at the bottom, other exercises are generally better suited to it. Because even if you make it a partial, the very bottom position, which we would want to be the most challenging, will just always be the least challenging. Yeah. Even with like partials, it will become relatively more challenging, but it will never be more challenging than any other point, which is unfortunate, which means that stuff like cable lateral raises tend to just work better, even as like partials. Yeah. Yeah, I've recently, you know, I've seen Mike Isertel go with like the fully overhead uh, laterals and I tried it and honestly, it just makes it easier. It's kind of like, you know, I I would joke about like the Isertel curl or Steve Hall curl where like they're bringing it and then they're doing this. And it's like, man, that just makes it so much easier because like my shoulders doing, you know, Um, and same thing with these laterals. Like I'll try to get, I'll maybe get like 10 and then I go overhead. I'm like, this is just giving me a break. Like, you know, I'm basically just taking a rest time there. So um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think I just want to say on the calves, you know, it's one reason why I see some people that do like a flat foot calf raise, just like with a barbell or something, which is probably the least effective. And I always had a, like a little, uh, a point about this, that I would say, you know, people would talk about, oh, like four range of motion calves, four range of motion calves. And then I'd see them and I say, almost nobody do I see doing four range of motion calves. And the reason I say that is because if, if somebody, you know, you're listening to this right now. Go on a step with both feet, no weight, and go as high as you possibly can. And look at that range of motion and then compare when you're actually doing weight. Very, very few people are actually that that peak contraction is actually a quite weak, you know, point. Like, I mean, I could add 50 pounds and I can barely get that. With that said, I don't think that matters at all <laughs> because I think that the, you know, the stretch is what you want anyway. But it was always like a point of contention when I see people talk about the importance of full range of motion and the peak contraction. Like I guarantee you, if you took the weight off, you'd go several inches higher or centimeters maybe. For sure. And that's super true of calf raises. I will say that's actually a really interesting point. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot more recently. So I've had a chat with, for example, Zach Robinson from Data Urban Strength about writing a paper about this. So one of the potential mechanisms as to why lengthened work might be better for hypertrophy could just be that generally the point of failure is in a relatively shortened position, right? Like when you fail the first rep on a full range of motion set, it's probably going to be in a relatively shortened position for most lifts, right? And especially most lifts that have been looked at potentially, like in the literature. So when you compare a length and partial to a full range of motion in the literature on these exercises where people fail in the shortened position, the additional hypertrophy you see from length and partials or from length of work in general compared to shortened work may just be the fact that you're able to train for more reps, get more workload overall, and get closer to quote-unquote true physiological failure. And that then leads mm. to more hypertrophy. Yeah. Now, this is a more compelling uh, rationale in light of recent data on training to failure for hypertrophy. So I'm not sure if you've seen the recent meta-analysis by um, Zach Robinson and colleagues. It was posted like a month ago, maybe. Um, on training to failure. And basically what it suggested was that training, the closer you train to failure, essentially, the more growth you see. And that growth increases non-linearly, which means when you go from like five reps in reserve to three reps in reserve, you see an improvement in hypertrophy. But going from three to one, you see a larger improvement in hypertrophy. 
Hmm. So that with each rep that you get closer to failure, the incremental improvement in hypertrophy actually increases. And going from volitional failure, which is ending a set when you don't want to do or you can't, you don't think you can do another rep, all the way to momentary failure, which is when generally you actually try a rep, try as hard as you can to complete the concentric phase, but you fail, that also seems to improve hypertrophy even further. And the effect sizes, the effect sizes involved here are actually relatively large. So when we're talking about going from, say, five or six reps in reserve to failure, we're talking about roughly double the hypertrophy. So it's a relatively wow. large effect size here. Now, there's some caveats there in terms of how the data was analyzed. So it, I'm not going to go out and say, hey, everyone, uh, double the hypertrophy for sure. That's how it is. Yeah. But I will say like it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty notable improvement in hypertrophy. Yeah, I, I did actually see that discussed. And I was kind of wondering what the, you know, the field's response to that would be because it kind of flies in the face of, of what a lot of people have been talking about recently. Um, now, you know, the general thing I've heard people say in the last five, 10 years is okay. Well, for strength, you don't want to go to failure for hypertrophy. You can go to failure, but it's no better. Um, and now this is, is obviously going against that. So have people like Mike Isertel or, or Steve Hall, any of that camp of a lot of more RAR work, uh, commented on that? Yeah. So because of its somewhat more unconventional methods. And so I know. I was actually in Denver for a few days staying with the authors of the paper, like in the same Airbnb. Um, so I know them personally, I know the lead, the senior author on the paper as well, because it's my supervisor. And I've read through the paper a few times now. I know the methods are relatively solid, but I know that some people will have reservations about them. So what I mean by that is, first, it was the first paper to ever use something called meta-regression to analyze how close to failure you should train for hypertrophy. Previous meta-analyses had all just dichotomized how close to failure you train as either you trained to failure or you didn't. Now that's not very informative mm -hmm. because in training, you don't go and say, don't train a failure to a client. You say, yeah. train with three reps in the tank or four, or you give them a weight to use, but you don't just say, don't train a failure or train a failure. It's not very informative as far as training decisions go. And so this analysis was the first one to actually plot the relationship of how close to failure you train and hypertrophy on a continuous level. Like how is it when you train at three reps in reserve, two, one, four, five, six, you know, all that stuff. And so it was very informative in that sense. Where it gets a bit more controversial is that they didn't just include all the studies included in previous meta-analyses. They actually just went and looked at the studies included in previous meta-analyses to make sure they didn't miss anything, right? But they also included three other types of studies. One was something called alternative set structures, which is where, for example, a study didn't explicitly look at training and say five reps in reserve versus two, but they looked at say cluster sets where one group is doing a set of five with their five rep max mm -hmm. and one group is doing sets of two with their five rep max, right? So you know that gotcha. the, set of, the, set, the group of people doing sets of five were training at failure and the people training for sets of two were training at three reps in reserve because they test their five rep max, yeah. um, but they didn't explicitly look at it. But in the context of this question, it's still relevant data. That's one category of studies included as well. The second one is velocity loss studies. So velocity loss is pretty tightly correlated to how close to failure you went. Like if you lost 40% of your velocity from start of set to end of set, and that's the velocity on the concentric phase, like how quickly you're able to lift the weight when you're actually lifting it, that velocity loss is quite closely correlated to how close to failure you're going. So if you lose more velocity, generally going closer to failure, and we can make some assumptions as to how that relates to reps in reserve, right? So you can kind of equate those things. And so they included those studies as well. 
Finally, the last set of studies they included was studies that just generally reported the RPE or reps on reserve for each set for all their training so that you could kind of average out. Well, in this study, it didn't look at reps on reserve specifically, but they reported every single um, RPE and reps on reserve for each set. We're going to use those findings as well because we know what intensity they train that, right? So we can include mm -hmm. that data as well. Yeah. And so as opposed to having, say, about 10 studies for previous analyses, they had closer to about 25 for hypertrophy. Like they have a lot more data. Yeah. And there's going to be some procedural variance, right? Because there were some assumptions going into how they estimated reps and reserve for these studies. So there's going to be some procedural variance introduced by these assumptions. But there's still a lot more data to go off of. And it's also a more informative analysis as far as yeah. plotting the relationship of hypertrophy as you go closer and closer to failure, as opposed to just failure and non-failure. Yeah. So that's why, personally, I think it's a pretty cool study. And that's actually something I've changed my training in light of. Um now, because of these factors, I think the reaction of the evidence-based space to me has been a bit disappointing in some sense, like some people. Um, I think there's a combination of a misunderstanding of the methods and to the author's full credit, they've been extremely transparent. There's literally spreadsheets where they detail how they estimated reps and reserve for each study. Mm. You can go through all of it if you wanted to, right? It's super transparent. Um, but I think some people in the evidence-based fitness space don't fully understand the methods or don't fully understand meta-analyses either. Like I've spoken to people, for example, who've mentioned they want to see replication of it. And it's like, I mean, with the same code, with I don't think people are going to arrive at very different conclusions with the same data. Like, yeah, there's some procedural variance introduced by the assumptions, but I don't think it will make much of a difference to replicate it. It's different with a study versus a meta-analysis. They're kind of an experimental study and the meta-analysis, they don't quite work the same way. Um. And so, yeah, I think it's ranged from, I want to say, for example, Menno Henselman's has heavily criticized the study. Um, Eric Helms has pointed out some limitations, which are which are generally true. But the interesting thing with some limitations or caveats, for example, a lot of studies included in this meta-analysis had people train between four and ten sets a week, right? So relatively low volumes. Yeah. However, the authors also performed subgroup analyses or moderator analyses, looking at how does the relationship change when, for example, they're doing higher volumes. And even when doing higher volumes, so those sort of higher volume studies, there was still a relationship where training closer to failure increased hypertrophy, but the magnitude of the difference was reduced. In other words, if you're only doing five sets a week, going to failure is definitely going to increase your hypertrophy by a good deal. However, if you're doing like, say, 15, 20 sets a week, you're still going to see a benefit of training to failure versus not training to failure, but it will be a smaller benefit. So the shape of the relationship remains, but the magnitude of the effect decreases. Sure. So some people point out limitations. Some people didn't really understand the methods. Some people heavily criticized the methods. And then finally, some people, like when I posted about it, it was funny because it got a lot of attention. A, because the paper was published like two days before I posted about it because I was kind of a Reddit. And two, because the people with the anti-failure bias, uh, so with the pro-failure bias, were loving it. Like oh, they yeah. were posting about it from you sure. know, the rooftops. They were spreading it far and wide. Um, and the people who were who had a relatively anti-failure bias, I think they were a bit taken aback. Yeah, so sure. it was very, relatively controversial, but it's a really cool study and it's definitely changed the way I train now. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, I'm like, well, it's I, like, definitely in more recent years, I've seen people with, you know, three, four or five. I mean, Zordos has talked about, he thinks five RAR is fine, which, you know, I, I would really question that. And also just the practicality of being able to consistently stay right at five RAR. But in any case, um, I think the general consensus from most people I've seen over the years has been, okay, 
the more volume you're doing, the more of it might have to be a little bit away from failure. And if you're doing low volume, you really want to take those sets to be closer to failure. Um, this sounds like it's still in line with that general principle, other than that you're basically saying all of them should still be going closer to failure now, if not like to failure. Um, but the benefit is even greater for those who are, who are doing low volume. Um, for somebody like myself, who's generally only doing like, I would say six to 12 sets, really it's like six to eight sets for almost everything except back, which gets closer to 12 per week. I, I'm fairly low volume for the time being. Um, most sets are taken to failure and that sounds like it's in line with, you know, what the paper would suggest. Hey man, you're a pioneer. What I'll say with uh, regards <laughs> to like the higher volume stuff, it really depends on where you fall on the spectrum of you have infinite time to train, like you don't have any time constraints versus you have time constraints. If you have time constraints, yeah, you should be taking for hypertrophy. Most sets two are very close to failure in light of this data. Like if you're only doing five to 10 sets a week, I would say definitely do that. On the other hand, if you don't have any major time constraints and you're mostly constrained by how much you can recover from, like how much fatigue your training is causing and how well you can recover from it, it's a bit more difficult to answer that question. When you look, one thing you can do is you can look at the effect sizes associated with doing more volume for hypertrophy versus training closer to failure. Because both are ways to potentially enhance the amount of hypertrophy you get, but both also cause additional fatigue. So if you're considering, I want to get as much hypertrophy as possible, but you can also only recover so much, so much fatigue, you want to take the best trade-off there is. And that could be either doing additional volume or doing training closer to failure. In this case, if you purely look at the effect sizes across metanases, you do generally see that training closer to failure results in more additional hypertrophy. Like there's bigger effect sizes associated with that. Now, the studies weren't really designed to look at the differences, right? Like this is a different meta-analysis from this one. So I'm not sure how well I compare the two. I will say I will generally lean in favor of making people train closer to failure once volume is in a reasonable spot. And by reasonable spot, I mean generally between like eight and 15 sets per week per muscle group, right? As long as you're somewhere in that ballpark, I'm not sure if additional volume will really meaningfully improve hypertrophy. And actually, the latest meta-analysis on volume and hypertrophy, first of all, not that many studies on this. Second of all, for two of the three muscle groups that were investigated in this meta-analysis, the best volume was 12 to 20 sets. And that's with relatively low rest times, right? Right, right. So that's like if you're resting like a minute or maybe a minute and a half between sets. For the third muscle groups, it was over 20 sets. So generally, when you also consider that they counted for indirect volume, so like, you know, a pull-down would count towards rear delts, back, biceps, forearms, and shit like that. When you account for that, and that most people don't count it this way potentially, and that the rest times were lower, you can kind of see that, okay, well, the meta-analysis said 12 to 20 and sometimes more than 20 sets, but if you account for the indirect volume counting and the lower rest times, it might be closer to like 10 to 15. Yeah. And then I think if your volume is somewhere in that ballpark for most muscle groups, and you have your rate training to say two to zero reps in a tank most of the time, the choice is whether, and you're recovering just fine, the choice you have is whether you should train closer to failure yet or to do with more volume yet. I would say generally I would push towards training a bit closer to failure rather than adding, say, going to 15, 25 sets necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's all good points. And I, I think it's interesting to see. You get some of these people who really do seem to respond well when they increase their volume dramatically. I've never been one of those people. I obviously experimented a lot over the years. Like for me, if I'm doing more than... 10 to 12, it's, I, I can recover from it. It's not necessarily like, I don't feel like I'm just drained. It just doesn't do more than, you know, I, I mentioned this, it might've been a coaching call actually. So I don't know if I said this on a podcast, but I think people kind of think of volume 
And, and the response to it a lot of times is like, okay, it's like more and more and more. And then you have this perfect amount and then it's down, down, down. And I think really it's like you go up and then there's just like this, you know, pretty wide range for some people where it's just kind of the same response. And then maybe at the extreme end, it goes down. But I mean, I've, I've experimented 30 sets per week of a certain body part. I think Abel Chavai has gone like 50, 60 just to experiment with back. I mean, I think that's extreme, but I'm just saying there's a lot you can recover from and it's not necessarily going to be dramatically better or worse, you know? For sure. I think the plateau on that inverted U-shaped curve for volume and hypertrophy is a lot bigger than people realize, right? Yeah. Um, the interesting thing, though, as I mentioned, is that even when you look at higher volume studies, it still seemed to be the case that um, training closer to failure generally improved hypertrophy, but just by a lesser extent, right? So what I would say is that that does kind of mean that there's many roads that lead to Rome. And so if you're someone who just enjoy tra enjoys training with high volume, you probably don't need to take every set to failure by any means. And you can still get probably the same hypertrophy. Equally, though, you can probably get better or the same hypertrophy training with slightly more moderate volumes and slightly closer to failure. Yep, yep. Cool, man. So uh, so we covered really three great things. We've got the whole genetics thing down, the cardio, and the, uh, the length and partials. I'm excited to see in this space and, you know, what you're putting out and, and the research to come. I'm sure many people want to follow along. So where can they follow your stuff? Thanks, man. I'm excited to put some more stuff out there. As I mentioned, several papers on the way with regards to failure stuff, with regards to range of motion stuff. So a lot of cool stuff. Um, so you can find me at Wolf Coach on Instagram. I've also more recently started posting a lot more on YouTube. So if you search Wolf Coaching on YouTube, you can find a lot of videos there. And that's I'm going to be releasing two videos every week. You can find my website at wolfcoaching.com. And if you want to find my research, research stuff, you can find that if you just search ResearchGate, Milo Wolf, all my research will just show up. So that's where you can find me. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for taking the time.